Well, let me get right to it, okay? Um, Easter is about a Jewish man named Jesus who was crucified on a Roman cross and then rose from the tomb he was buried in three days later. That's it right there. Your life, my life, our lives, our entire lives hinge on this. And the question that you're confronted with, that I'm confronted with every Easter is simply these words, do you believe this? We're confronted with that when we hit this magical pastel day uh, every March or April or whoever that person is that decides to name what this day is going to be every year. Now listen, um, man, I, I love holidays. You got to talk to my wife about that. I have a great love for holidays. Again, pastels, some of my favorite color combinations as long as I don't have to wear them. You know, I'm looking out there and I'm, I'm liking everything that I see. Uh, you know, is this a pastel? Did I? It is a pastel. Well, Guys, give me a minute so I can change and take back what I just said. But no, I, I love it. I love holidays. I, I love everything that goes in with the holidays. I love waking up on Easter, you know, to a basket filled with chocolate eggs and, and bunnies. I mean, that's, you know, if you know me, you know those things are my thing. Even though when I woke up this morning, there was nothing, and I'm dealing with a lot of pain right now. There's a lot of pain I'm going to be dealing with as I preach through this sermon. My wife and I, we have some things to discuss later on, but I'm not going to drag you into that. But... We cannot pretend that this day falls anywhere within the same galaxy of those traditions because it doesn't. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look into the resurrection, but we're going to look into the resurrection of another man in Scripture named Lazarus, and we're going to do it in the hope that God will grant us a deeper understanding and a deeper love for Jesus or even just grant us a life-giving belief in him for the first time. So here's a little bit of the backstory as we dive into John 11. Lazarus was dead as a doornail, right? This must be clearly understood or no good can come of the story we are about to read. And there's a little bit of a cast of characters here, main characters, that include Martha and Mary, who were the sisters of Lazarus, and then Jesus, of course, who was a close family friend of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. So as we open John chapter 11, I'm just going to give us a brief intro into the passage that we're going to get to. What we have is we have Martha and Mary sending word to Jesus that their brother Lazarus is sick. He's sick. We're not really told what it is, but he's sick. And their hope and their expectation by sending that word to Jesus is that he'll get the memo and he'll come heal their brother forthwith, which is a word that means without delay. And it's actually a word that I Learned from the show Blue Bloods, beloved of senior citizens everywhere. <laughs> and me. And my wife. Just throwing it out there. Um, this was a perfectly reasonable request because Jesus had healed countless numbers of sick people up to this point. But Jesus does something the sisters were going to think was inexplicable, which was this. He waited. He waited after he got the news that Lazarus was sick. And not only does Jesus wait, but he does it. He waits knowing that Lazarus will die before he gets there. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus do something like that? Well, not to give away the whole thing, but we're given the reason why as we look in verse 14 of chapter 11. And it says this, Then Jesus told them plainly, He's talking to his disciples. Lazarus has died. And then in 15, he says, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, is what he says. 
And then in verse 40, he further explains what would happen if they believed. He says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? That's what he says to the disciples. That's why he waited. That's why he paused. That's why he did something that made no sense to everybody else that was surrounding to him. It's because Jesus had two desires. He had two desires for his friends. Number one, that they would believe him. And secondly, by believing him, they would see the glory of God. And so that's our main point. That's the big idea this morning as we consider the resurrection in and of itself. That belief in Jesus is the road to God's glory. So let's see how this fleshes out for Lazarus here. Let's pick up with verse 17. And it says this in John 11. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then he says this, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So here's the scene. Jesus finally arrives in the town of Bethany, but four days have passed since Lazarus died. So when Martha meets Jesus, she's understandably a little upset. If only you would have been there, my brother would not have died, she says in verse 21. And yet, and yet, even in her grieving, What we see here in Martha is that she doesn't totally abandon her belief as we read in verse 22. But even in this, we see something very interesting. We see the conflict that wars inside of us, which is disappointment in God's decisions mixed with expectations of how we think God should have acted. So my dad's legs went numb at 3 a.m. on August 19th, 2007. The ambulance came, they rushed him to the hospital. It was too late. Could God had given my dad more time? Yes. Why didn't he? Those are the only if questions we ask God when we find ourselves believing he could act but wondering why on earth he doesn't act. Was Martha wrong in wanting her brother to be healed? Of course not. Jesus actually tells her what she longs to hear in verse 23 when he says, your brother will rise again. But there's the rub, right? There's the rub. It's so much harder to believe he can raise a man from the dead rather than just heal a man from his sickness. That's like us, isn't it? 
If only God would have done what I wanted him to do, I wouldn't need to have the amount of faith I need to have since he didn't. That's interesting, isn't it? For us who have gone through things like Martha and Mary, and you can hear the exasperation, you can hear the misunderstanding in Martha's voice as she replies to Jesus in verse 24. He, she says, I know, like I know he'll be resurrected on the last day. She's like, I get what you mean when you say resurrection, Jesus, but how does that help me now? In actuality, she would come to understand that it means everything now. Could it be Could it be that Jesus wanted Martha to understand that the biggest issue in her life was not whether her brother lived or died, but to believe that Jesus held the power over all life and all death? Because the way that Jesus responds to Martha gives her her answer in verse 25 and 26. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die." Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. There's something beyond. There's something beyond even the grief that Martha is experiencing of her brother's death that is far more significant. Jesus asks Martha, do you believe who I am? You know what's interesting? It's interesting that Jesus never asks Martha if she believes that he will raise Lazarus to life. More importantly, he declares himself to be the source of all life to those who believe. And what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's testing Martha's heart. He's making her wait. He's challenging her faith. It's not whether Jesus will resurrect Lazarus. It's that Jesus is the resurrection. For all who believe, he is the resurrection. Martha's eyes... Martha's eyes were on the wrong man. Without Jesus, there is no life for Lazarus. There is no life for Martha. There is no life for anybody ever. And look how the story progresses as we pick up in verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That sounds familiar. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind men also have kept this man from dying? So Martha's sister Mary, she enters the picture. She enters the story. And notice in verse 32, she falls at the feet of Jesus and makes the same statement that Martha 
made. Like two sisters obviously hanging out, talking about what was going wrong, deciding what it was together that they were going to lay at Jesus' feet when they saw Jesus. Like that's never happened with siblings. It happened here. The same grief, the same heartache, it comes pouring out. But look at verse 33. Look what it says. It says, Jesus saw her weeping. What a great reminder. What a great reminder that Jesus never casts a blind eye or a vacant heart towards those who are immersed in grief and sadness. His love, his patience, and his gentleness, they just come flowing out of him. And then again, in verse 33, we read that he is deeply moved and he is greatly troubled. Now, another translation says he was angry in his spirit. Well, what the heck? What was Jesus angered by? Well, he was, he was angered by seeing the devastation that death had achieved in our fallen world. So when you think about Jesus as the creator of a once perfect, sinless, deathless creation, here he is now subjected to the ruin that sin has made of it all. And it angered him and it troubled him to see that, to be immersed in that, to be around his friends who were experiencing that because it's not natural. It was never part of the original plan. So they bring Jesus to the tomb, and it says he's overcome with emotion. The very sight of it all moves him to tears, it says. Man, we should pause here for a second. We want to pause because we don't want to miss the heart of Jesus here. Because again, this is not the image, is it, that most of us have of Jesus, of somebody breaking down and grieving with those who are suffering and grieving. Instead, we ask questions like this. We say, you know what? If he's so loving, why does he allow so much pain in the world? We're like Martha and Mary. If only you would have been here. But we rarely consider how he weeps with us in our pain, how he grieves over death, and how angered he is over just this insidious control that sin has over us. But the Jews who were observing all this respond in verses 36 through 37. Some were touched by the emotion that came pouring out of Jesus, while others were more critical. They said, couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Couldn't someone with the power to give blind men back their sight have healed this dude? And what we know and what all of us have experienced at one time or another is that grief can create confusion and it creates questions in us. It causes us to ask things like, is God less good when he doesn't do the good we believe that he should do? We're very quick to ask that question without considering that God probably has a good that we can't comprehend in our grief. Tim Keller makes this comment, God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows. But we don't. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. 
Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Verse 41, so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Verse 43, and when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The heart and emotions of Jesus, they continue to stir. He's being stirred. And they continue to stir as he arrives at the tomb. He asks for the stone to be removed. Martha's like, I don't know how to say this, Jesus, but it's not going to smell good, right? She's still not understanding what he's up to. So he tells her again in verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? Notice the emphasis. Notice it. Jesus doesn't mention anything about Lazarus. He doesn't say, give me a minute, it's going to be good times again with you and your bro. That's what, that's what I'd want to hear. That's what we'd all want to hear. But he says something far more important in verse 40, which is that belief is the road to seeing the glory of God. He draws her back to the trustworthiness of his word, which he assures her will result in the glory of God. But you know what's happening right now with our sister Martha? Her faith is weak. Her faith is weak. So they remove the tombstone and Jesus lifts his eyes heavenward and prays. Notice the prayer. Again, we're not given, we're not given any account of the prayer, but it wasn't explicitly to raise Lazarus. It was that the people might believe who he was. It was that the people might see that he was sent by God. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the same apostle that wrote this book, and the word became flesh, he says, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Jesus' desire was that they would see him as he was the Son of God, the Father. And then one of the most dramatic scenes in all of Scripture, Jesus opens his mouth and cries out to Lazarus, come out. I could have yelled that, but in Lazarus, comes out in like full dead person clothing, right? I mean, dude, pa like pause for a second. Like, I mean, let your imagination rest on that for a minute. Imagine the look on everybody's face. I mean, imagine that moment. I mean, I remember being in a magic shop once, right? I'm watching a guy do some simple car tricks, and I'm like, magic must be real. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's how easily I'm convinced, right? Jesus calls a dead man 
out of a tomb after four days, and the guy comes walking out like a scene from the mummy. And then he says, unbind him and let him go in verse 44. Now, I don't know about you. This is just a little bit of a side note, but if that's me, I'm probably going to be like, I'm, I'm good. You know I, I, you know, I don't need to go like start tearing off cloths off this guy. But that word, that word, unbind. Jesus had truly unbound Lazarus from the grip of death. And what was this? What was this but a preview of how God would unbind Jesus from the power of death on the third day after his death on the cross? But don't miss what Jesus does here. He calls the people to go to Lazarus and to touch him with their own hands, to remove the wrappings of death, to grapple with belief, to acknowledge this resurrected man. And then it says, as you continue down in verse 45, it says that some believed. But for some who didn't believe, what we would find if we kept reading through the chapter was that this would be the final straw in unfolding their plan to crucify Jesus. And that's because we know that the root of all sin is simply unbelief. So let me finish our time this morning by asking this. What questions does this story answer for us? What questions does the story answer for us? The first one I think is this. Is God's timing ever off? Because we're faced with timing issues here with Jesus. And what we learn in Scripture is that God's timing is different than ours. If you're Martha or Mary, you were struggling to grasp why Jesus wanted to heal, waited to heal their brother. And we struggle to understand that sometimes too, don't we? 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9 says, Don't overlook this one fact, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow. He's not slow to fulfill his promise. It's some count slowness, some meaning us, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God waits so that our faith becomes fuller. That's why he waits. Do you ever wonder why we're so shocked when the timing of something is just right? Because timing is largely uncontrollable. And when something just comes together, we're stunned, right? I remember when I, when I met my wife, Melissa, and uh, I met her through a mutual friend, and then two years passed. And I saw her here and there, and I wish I could have done more than just meet her, but it didn't work out, and I was a chicken. And... Uh, so what happened was there was this tiny little concert happening an hour away from my house, right? And I remember my brother and our friends, they were going to go to the concert. And I'm like, man, I'm tired. I'm, I'm just, I'm not going to do it. I'm out tonight. I'm just going to kick it at home. It's a Saturday night. And they start pulling away and I change my mind. So I literally like run out the house and run up the street, waving my hand saying, wait, I want to come. I want to come. And they saw me and they stopped. And so we get to the cafe and lo and behold, there's Big M. That's what I call her. Her name's Melissa. And again, it, it's 1994, so if you saw Melissa back then, you're seeing this big mound of 1994 curly hair. Um, 
So man, I'm just like, man, I did all this. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not missing my op here. By op, I mean opportunity. And uh, so she's with her friend. And uh, so, you know, which gives me a little more confidence, right? So I roll up and I say, hey, you know, can I buy you a cup of coffee? And it was awesome, man. I mean, she looks at me and she says, no. Ah, that's funny, isn't it? <laughs> well, listen to this. Listen to this, funny, funny kids. Three weeks later, we're at the beach drinking coffee, committing our undying love to the other person, right? That happened. I mean, I'm still stunned. Like, that story just still, like, stuns me. All the elements that had to come together leading to that one night, Right? God has never stumbled his way into anything. He doesn't do that. Everything he plans, he fulfills at exactly the moment he planned to fulfill it. We have no greater example of this than Christ. Ephesians 1, 7 through 10 said, He set forth in Christ a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So just at the time that he wanted to do it, he fulfilled the plan that he had to send Christ as an atonement for our sins. The resurrection, what we're celebrating this morning, it came at a point in human history that God had ordained before the foundation of the world. Now listen, listen. If God's timing was perfect in executing the most important plan ever designed for the deliverance of mankind... How can you not trust his timing over all other things? That's why we go back to the cross and remember. We go back to the resurrection and remember. We remember that there's nothing in our life that isn't happening exactly how God has ordained it to happen. What's strange about you and me is that we think we're supposed to understand it. Romans 11 tells us this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable, think about that word, are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And then it says this, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be replayed, repaid? And then he says this, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. God's plans are foolproof because his promises have always proven to be kept exactly the time that he decides to keep them. Let that encourage you. Let that encourage you today if you were in a season where God seems silent and still. He's not still. He's still in you so that you will know he's God and that you're not and that I'm not. The second question this answers is, does God still help even when our faith is weak? Now, let's just be honest. Martha and Mary's faith was not at its peak when Jesus raised Lazarus. They had no vision for what Jesus was about to do, and yet they still believed who Jesus was. And that reminds us that there's a tension between faith and belief. Remember this. Remember what was about to happen. 
This was right before Jesus was about to be hurled into crucifixion. Remember the night of his death, all of Jesus' friends, these apostles, these men he'd spent every waking hour with walking, talking, eating, teaching, instructing, caring for, sharing life with. They abandoned him. They all bailed at the 11th hour. He had told them about his death repeatedly. But when the soldiers came to take him away to be tried, condemned, and crucified, they couldn't believe what was happening. So they fled. They fled in fear. Jesus died for all those men whose faith was so weak, whose fear was so strong. Men who were closer to him than all other men on the earth at that time. He didn't die because of their great faith. He died so that they might have a great faith in God. D.A. Carson said, it's not the intensity of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves. Romans 5, 6 reminds us, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus made himself weak for weak men, for weak women like you. And this recalls a story in Mark chapter 9 of a man who had had a child with an unclean spirit. Jesus tells him, All things are possible for one who believes, but the man was hanging in the balance. He'd come to Jesus to get help, but he was hanging in the balance of faith and belief, so he cries out honestly to Jesus. He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus healed his child. A weak faith is still a faith. So yes, God still helps us when our faith is weak. That's what this story, that's the question this story answers. And finally, does God care? Does God care? Seeing Jesus weep over his friend Lazarus gives us our answer. It gives us such great insight into the grief and compassion that God has for us. Speaking about Jesus in the book of Hebrews, it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Then in Colossians 1.15, this is Paul writing, he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So this heart that Jesus had, dealing, grieving with the grieving, he is the image of a God who has the same grieving over our grief. We can know that, we can believe that, the broken heart that Jesus had for Lazarus, it's just a reflection of God's heart for us in our affliction. It's actually the deception, though, in our hearts that causes us to believe that our hearts somehow break more deeply over pain than God's heart. But the resurrection of Jesus provides us with the image of a father who willingly allowed his son, his only son, to die so that we might die to sin and we might become his sons his daughters. There is no greater portrait of love and compassion to be found anywhere, anywhere in all of history. All the stories. This one is at the peak. Psalm 103.13 reminds us, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Psalm 30 encourages us. It says, weeping, it might tarry for the night, 
You're going to have pain. You're going to experience grief. Reject those people that tell you the Christian life just erases all your pain because they're lying. Psalm 30 says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And then we get such great hope and encouragement in Revelation 21. As it says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. And we are, we are all faced with death. That's not the pastel message for Resurrection Sunday. But we are all faced with death. We are all mired in doubt at times. The resurrection reminds us that those will all be former things. Do we believe this? Do you believe this? Because belief in Jesus is the only road to seeing God's glory. The resurrection is the assurance that God will raise all those up who take up their cross and follow him. The most Easter question I can ask this morning is this. Have you been raised to new life in Christ? Because that only happens when you confess, when you confess that you are dead in your sins and you ask God to forgive you of your sins and trust that Jesus died for your sins on the cross. You know what we call that here? We call that the gospel. We call that the gospel of grace because it's a free gift. God raised Jesus so that he might raise all those who believe Jesus. And if we believe Jesus, we have hope that someday we will see him face to face beholding God's glory. Amen? Let's pray. God, change us this morning. Remind us of your power and your grace. The same voice that raised Lazarus comes to us and raises us from the depth of our sin to new life in Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be so moved by this, not as an emotional, sentimental story, but as the truth about our position before you, about the truth that we are people that are engaging in a life-in-death life every day of our lives. Lord, I pray that you would humble our hearts. Lord, humble our hearts. Let the resurrection continue to humble us and change us. Lord, if we don't know you, we pray this morning, Lord, that you would reach in, Lord, and you would make yourself known to those who have not submitted their lives to you, who have not confessed their sin, who have not trusted in Christ for their salvation. Lord, the gospel is good, good news for us right now. It's good news. It's news that we need to have. It's news we need to continuously hear. It's the only news in the world that has any effect on the direction of our heart and our life. 
So, Lord, make it ever clear, make it ever dear in our lives, we pray this morning. You are good to do this. You are the almighty God. You are the creator over all things. You love us. And we thank you for your grace and for your resurrection this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Together we said, amen.